You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. Hey everyone, if you're a regular listener to Uncommentary, you may know that we were recently named one of the 12 podcasts you don't want to miss by Christianity Today. We're really happy about that. Uh, I want to talk to you if you've been listening, but you haven't yet become a supporter through Patreon or PayPal. Uh, it's really helpful, and I'm going to do a pledge drive. I'm hearkening back to the old days. So right now there are about 32 or 34 regular monthly supporters for Uncommentary, and then every month I'll pick up maybe one or two additional gifts of support through PayPal. So I want to encourage you, if you've yet to jump on that particular bandwagon, Every episode that doesn't have an episode sponsor, and that's like 90% of them, is sponsored by my Patreon uh, group and the PayPal supporters. So I encourage you to join that little band, patreon.com slash uncommentary or paypal.me slash uncommentary pod if you'd like to give just a one-time gift. Now, at Patreon, you can support paper, uh, support uncommentary for only a couple of bucks a month if that's your limit. Uh, you can go to four or five or 10 or 20 or something like that. If you're feeling especially generous or if you've been blessed in some big way, uh, I'll take it and put it to good use. But I want to encourage you over the next six weeks or so to become a supporter through Patreon or through PayPal. Thanks a lot. My guest today on commentary is Dr. Alan Noble. He's a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, but that's not why he's on here today. Uh, Alan is a really good social commentator. He's a good cultural thinker. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably know him. Uh, he's a great guy. This is a good interview. It's kind of freewheeling because, um, well, you'll find out. Uh, but this is Alan Noble. Um, I hope if you, uh, and I want to say thanks to everyone. I've picked up several new Patreon supporters this month. Um, in my fundraising time, and this is the last week. So thanks so much for that. Um, th- that's really encouraging, and I promise you it'll be put to good use. And now here's my conversation with Alan. If you follow me on Twitter or engage me on Twitter at all, then you know my guest today because he's all over Twitter, and he and I interact a lot. Uh, in fact, he's on Twitter so much, I'm not sure he actually has a job. I think maybe his job description at Oklahoma Baptist University is like assistant professor of Twitter. I'm not sure. Is that right? I mean, I don't, I really don't know what it is you do there. <laughs> Are you trying to get me fired? What are you trying to? Well, I mean, to we're going to cover this before we go into the baldness, <laughs> you know, the, the war on baldness okay. or whatever. Uh, I teach English. Now you teach English. Yeah. Okay. I forgot about That's that. What I teach. All right. Good. Yep. I probably should take a class from you. Uh, but you also used to be in a band, like a punk rock band or something like that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were in the I'll socks, the so socks I, pistols. No. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, yeah. So I did meet my wife in a band, but we, we were not punk. You know, we were we were like I don't know, alt rock or something. We were bad. That's what I like to tell people. Okay, you music did you play? Bad. <laughs> Not not very good, but I met my wife, so it's like you know that's good. So it was worth it. So Michael it Jackson's song was an homage. Is that what you're trying to say? 
if if only that kind of bad. No, I said when I was like 15, I decided I'm gonna learn to play the guitar, and I I remember explicitly thinking, you know, for the girls, like yeah. that's 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 it. Like yeah. I'm gonna play guitar for you know to be uh, I don't know attractive or something. And I got my wife that way. <laughs> So I kind of feel like it, it works. A raging you know? success. Absolutely. Which is bizarre. I would not give that advice to young people. But <laughs> on the other hand, it really worked out for me. So so um, this this really is an honor. I've been, I've been wanting to have you on Uncommentary for a long time. So Alan Noble, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I do say that. Let me say something. I do say that every time. I'm on a podcast that you're glad to be there. Welcome. And I always say, I'm I'm glad to be here. So (laughs) I I just want to be honest. That's that's kind of, I've heard other people do it and I feel like it's, it's almost this automatic thing. Look, you, you were headed, you were headed in the right direction when, when you were going to say, I don't ever, I hardly ever mean it, but I mean it this time. But when you just said, (laughs) it's what I always say, and I'm going to say it now too. I mean, like this episode is tanking already. This is like, this is so bad. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) But I'm glad to be here. I'm not on Twitter all the time. I'm on Twitter too much. You know, I don't know. We're, so we're going to talk about that. So, uh, dear dear listener, um, this is this is the scenario that you have accidentally fallen into me, today. Do you, have, do you have one listener? You just said, "Dear listener." Well, I never. It's probably one at a time. I mean, they, there's a, <laughs> there's okay, an accumulation of them, but but Got it's it. you know okay. one at a time. I try. Well, to, I hadn't thought about that. I try to address my audience as if they're individuals and we have a relationship. Nice. <laughs> okay. I can make a church pastor. <laughs> 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 and then you pass them off to a community group. Leader. That's exactly. That's, that's exactly. Good. When you come that's to the good. altar, you'll be talking to someone you'll never see again. Um. Yeah. So, uh, so those of you who are those of you who are listening, that's what I usually say. Those of you who are listening, there we go. Uh, yeah. This is going to be a little different. In case you haven't picked up on it already, this one's going to be a little different uh, because Alan and I uh, we struggled to get a time slot, and so. Uh, the initial time. So we've been waiting on this big book to come out that he's just written about pushing boulders up mountains. We're waiting for that to come mm-hmm. out. It's not out yet. It's coming out in August, right? Is that right? October. Oh, gee whiz. I know. Tell me about it. Okay. So now you know what to buy people for their Halloween gifts. Um, <laughs> put, put a stack of those okay. next to your door. And when kids come up trick or treat, give them a book of a guy rolling a boulder up a hill. I've, I recommend that. Yeah. Yes. In, instead of Hershey's Kisses, here's a book by Alan Noble. They'll be mad at first, but once they open it up, that's true. That's true. With their <laughs> greasy little Skittles fingers all over the pages. <laughs> uh, so we had a hard time getting scheduled, and so we did get scheduled. And um, I, I, I didn't tell you this, but I had Mark Noel was scheduled for yesterday and there was zero chance that I could do it because I was on a business trip. I had to cancel his, his, or reschedule his appointment, his interview. And so then you scheduled at three o'clock and I honestly thought, no lie. I thought I was going to have to pull off the side of interstate 65 at a Starbucks and sit in the parking lot and record this on my phone because I didn't know that I would be back home, but because we'd already rescheduled once I wanted to keep it. Oh, so those of you who are listening, 
this will be less structured than you're even accustomed to for uncommentary. But Alan is a great guy. Uh, he has a great presence on Twitter. Uh, I'm not even joking at all when I say that. Uh, he represents uh, the Lord well. He represents evangelicalism well. And so that's kind of where I want to start because you – there's, I don't think there's any way in this world that you would consider yourself a public theologian, but you do a lot no. of public theology. Uh, you do a lot of public Christian ethics. You do a lot of that on social media. How did you, I don't think you woke up one morning and decided to do it. If you're like the rest of us, it just kind of developed over time. At what uh-huh. point did you realize, okay, I'm, I'm kind of starting to having an influence here. People are starting to pay attention to some of the stuff I'm saying about culture and i want to be more intentional about this yeah so i i think it probably honestly began with christ and pop culture which is the online magazine i started with richard clark who's now um no longer at christianity today i don't even remember where he's at the good people company or something i can't remember what it's called he's he's doing doing some other work the good good book company is that it Nope. Oh, nope, okay. definitely not. Definitely not that. Yeah, uh, it's not because it's not publishing. Oh, gotcha. Like okay. Ads and things like this. So uh, he's a good friend. Not good enough, apparently, for me to know the name of the company he works at, but uh, <laughs> still very good. And uh, I've always had, and it's uh, uh, probably an issue of, of vanity, but it's as often is the case when. Um, you have a particular heart for something and talent for something. It's often also your, your weakness, mm-hmm. right? Like, so it has to be something that you're, you're very cognizant of and, and check yourself on. So I have always been someone who, uh, is interested in cultural trends and themes and sort of big picture ideas. I just, I just, there's just something about them that I, that I really love. So, you know, my first book was about secularism, but also technology. So both of those are big picture themes on, you know, Western in Western society. And when we started Christ and Pop Culture, I did a, a column, Citizenship Confusion, that was on, um, well, now we would call it Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. um, but we didn't call it that at the time. But but essentially, I started writing about, um, well, let's see, so this was 20, uh, no, not yet. So 2007, 2008, uh, there's a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment mm-hmm. among evangelicals at the time. And so I was writing quite a bit about that. And, um, I just, I just found that, A, I cared a lot about my community, which were evangelicals. And so at the, um, at first it was primarily Facebook that where I was following. And I intentionally followed a diversity of, of evangelicals on Facebook. To try to get a pulse, to get the pulse, right? To see, okay, what are what are the things you guys are having conversations about? What are you getting up in arms and about? And at the time, like as I said, a lot of it was uh, anti-Muslim. And then when uh, in Obama in office, there were a lot of uh, conspiracy theories about him, and so wrote about them, and then uh, and race, and just so a lot of different issues. And um, I, you know, I found that. Some people found my writing helpful, and so that kind of reinforced it. Um, and I thought, well, I guess I'll just keep doing this if it's helpful. Um, it sort of just kind of took off from there um, over the course of 15 years or so. Yeah. Well, your presence on Twitter is um, 
valued. Uh, I mean, by a lot of people. Thanks. When you um, when you make a, uh, I mean, when you talk about the the war against baldness, you know, you get some interactions. Not you know, Tim Keller shows up every now and then, but um, but when but when you when you tweet about public policy or theology or things like that, there's a lot of interactions. So there are a lot of people who are, I won't say they're looking to you for guidance or thought processing or something like that, but it's clear yeah. that what you, the, the content that you put out resonates with people. Let me say it that way. Thank uh, you. Yeah. One of, and one of them is me. So, um, I'm, I'm glad that, um, I can use your online presence to help sharpen my own online presence. And so, uh, so that's really helpful. Um, but one of the things that you talked about a lot for about four years from January of 2016 to right around January of 2020, uh, was the presidency of Donald Trump. Let's just say it that way. Um, and so you were a, I won't say you were a never Trumper because I don't know what you were to begin with, but you were a, a consistent, um, and a, uh, an even critic of the, the, the recent ex-president. Um, why did you feel like that it was important to be consistently evaluating what Trump did as president? So, um, just as when I started writing it, you know, the focus tended to be on issues within my community where I felt like people who I identified as sort of my people, were um, uh, misled, misguided, ignorant, being abused, being um, manipulated by by other people who were influential or positions of power or the media or whatever whatever it was. And, um, so just just as in you know 2007, it tended to be issues around is Islam, and then a little later. Uh, Obama conspiracy theories. Is, is he a secret Muslim? Is he American citizen? That kind of thing. Um, I, I looked around at my community, at uh, people who I identified with, and uh, it, it struck me looking at the you know the polling data, but also just the people I knew that there was widespread support of the current president, and. Um, there are plenty. Of, so this is what I like to tell, because I often get accused of being liberal or or secretly hating evangelicals or something, or just having like oh this, no, you're a communist. Uh, self hate. Yeah, yeah. You're not liberal. <laughs> you're a communist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, self hate or self loathing or trying to like impress the East Coast liberal or or something <laughs> by throwing evangelicals under the bus, and I'm just like I. But see, the reality is, is that I. The way I am wired, I am much more concerned about the mess in my own house mm-hmm. than the mess in somebody else's house. Because I'm, and part of it is like I know that there are thoughtful conservatives who will criticize uh, the Democrats, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't, you don't really need me to tell you why the Democrats who, you know, who are in office under Trump um, were doing things that they shouldn't have. Like mm-hmm. I, there are other evangelicals who can do that who are conservative. There weren't, in my opinion, enough saying, okay, the president lied again today. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's destructive to our community, our culture, and our nation. Um, so, I mean, there are plenty of, of, of liberal critics who would say that, and that's fine. But the, the problem is that I knew, okay, 
my friends who are in the church who think all liberal media is is wrong, they're not going to listen to those voices. And so uh, uh, across different issues, that has kind of been what I felt to be uh, something of importance to me. Let's stop for just a second on the issue of cleaning up your own house. Um, why do you think it is that those of us, and I'll include myself in this because I, I, I'm kind of where you are with this. <clears throat> why, why is it that when you're critical or cleaning up or pointing out the things that are wrong inside your own house, that there's this reflexive response that, Oh, you're a liberal or, Oh, you're a progressive or, Oh, you must have voted for Biden or, Oh, you like, you know, you have an AOC bumper sticker or whatever. Yeah. Um, what, what, what's the reasoning do you think, or is it reasoning? Is it just, it, have we just reached a point that there, the binary is so stark and the gap is so wide that if you see anybody that resembles somebody on the other side of the chasm, you just assume regardless of where they say they're standing, that they're actually in the other camp. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I do think that that is the case. I think that our identities are very, very often shaped by uh, the culture wars, which um, spans politics and theology and commerce. I mean, it actually it's, it's home. I would say is commerce. It's actually consumerism is where, or most the culture war really shows up, but it you know goes into these other fields as well, and um, be, because we have our identity so attached to these sort of signifiers, these this idea of being a conservative or a liberal or whatever it might be, progressive, uh, social justice warrior, and anti-social justice warrior. Mm-hmm. Then um, people who identify with you um, in, in in some way, but call you out or challenge you publicly, um, yeah, they're they're seen as a, a threat to the group, and so they're 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 pushed they're pushed aside. Um, it, it's also the case, and I think another aspect of this is. <clears throat> Uh, very few groups, very few groups tolerate intra-group criticism because the out-group always tends to be criticizing so harshly. Mm. So as the political and, and theological and cultural divide becomes wider and wider, what happens is people on the right and on the left mm-hmm. say to their own people, like, why are you sniping at me? Why are you criticizing those guys are the bad guys. Like those guys are the ones who are going to ruin our country or the church or whatever. Don't, if, if you're criticizing our group, then you're really just a part of them. Uh. Um, and, and, and I do think that if, that if uh, the less conservatives and liberals can, can uh, concede, can uh, talk to each other, the more we feel like we have to preserve ourselves, the more we feel like we can't accept more criticism. We're already getting so much criticism. The left really is trying to destroy us, or the right really is trying to destroy us. So we cannot tolerate criticism coming from the inside. There's just no space for it. So sometimes I think, I mean... I, I get it. We're you're tired of of the of the war. You're tired of constantly being criticized. Um, 
and that sucks. But unfortunately, sometimes there are still criticisms that need to be made because groups do things that are wrong. That needs to be pointed out. So it is what it is. This is Marty Duran. You're listening to Nun Commentary. I'm having a great conversation with Alan Noble. He's a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, as well as a good, astute cultural commentator. And we'll be right back after this. If you've been listening to Uncommentary for any length of time, you've heard me talk about Hearts and Minds books. They're my favorite independent bookstore located in Pennsylvania, owned by Byron Borger. I hope you'll give them a try, heartsandmindsbooks.com. Every book I've ever ordered from Hearts and Minds has come carefully wrapped in uh, brown wrapping paper, like packaging paper. Every single book. Nothing's just thrown in a box with with a thing of bubble wrap and shipped to you in the hopes that it gets there in some kind of condition that it's still worth reading. You never have to worry about that with Byron. So I encourage you to try out Hearts and Minds Books. Go to heartsandmindsbooks.com and let them know what you need. Mention Uncommentary, and if he can, he'll give you a discount on the book that you order. Thanks a lot for listening and support Hearts and Minds Books. So I just pulled up, uh, I went to the uh, page of the world's largest and most intrusive bookstore and... Um, looked up your name and it appears you've written a children's book that I didn't know about. <laughs> uh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? What if I fail? What if you fly young Solomon? Congratulations on that. But apparently you also write under your full name, Shane Allen Noble. <laughs> and you've written another book called Tre- Trencher's Bunker. I didn't know about that one either. Trenches. I had not. Yeah. Okay. That one's a new one. Um, yeah, what if you fly young Solomon? Yeah, that one, I'm, I'm interested in meeting that, that Alan Noble. But this is even, um, this is almost as good as either one of those. So I just searched your name and the first thing that came up was a sponsored post for Dracula. <laughs> I, how do you explain that? Dude, I don't do know. Do you, is that, is that like an illustration in either one of your books? Do you tell a Bram Stoker story no, or something? I've never talked about, never talked about Dracula. Here's that, that young, that, Alan Noble Children's author. Yes. My favorite one is he has it, the book one in the Young Solomon series is called We Can Play Rough, colon, A Lesson on Hitting. So <laughs> I <laughs> I just I don't know why, but I just love that. I just I wish that were my book. It's like Destructive Witness, You're Not our, You Are Not Your Own. Oh man, that's awesome. How to hit. So, How to hit people. That's right. With with this book. <laughs> Uh, so a couple of years ago, you released uh, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. And if you're listening and you have yet to read that book, I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's really, really stellar. And it's got a lot of good stuff in it that will help uh, that will help you if you kind of put it into practice. If you don't put it into practice, then it'll be like every other book you read. Um, but Alan has a new book coming out called You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And I joke about the cover, but I love the cover. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, I really like the gift that they did for you. Uh, is that GIF, GIF, whatever Isn't that, amazing? that they did yeah. for you? That is really substantial. That's one of the better things I've seen come out of publishing in a while. Um, so what is this <laughs> yeah. book about, dude? I mean, I got a digital copy that I haven't read yet. What's it about? Thanks. Thanks for not reading that. You're, uh, um, I, hey, I'm just yeah. glad to be here. <laughs> Look, I'm just glad it got written. To be honest, you know, writing a book is such a is such a impossible feat. That, uh, you know, look, if you finish I, one, it's great. You've done two. You have nothing but my highest praise. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how it, how it happened, but um, 
you know, so when I, I wrote this first book, I wrote this first book, and uh, I talk about technology of distraction quite a bit in it. And one of the things that happened is I went around uh, the country. That sounds really impressive, but I talked to people, you know, at a few places in different states, and I talked to people. And you know, some of the questions they would ask would be, you know, what are what are your social media practices, and you know, how do you they wanted a, they wanted a, a um a plan like they wanted a system how do i live the ideal life where i'm not binge watching tv and i'm not being distracted at all and the more i talked to people the more i realized that the account of distractions that i gave in that book was not complete and i'm it's hard to write anything complete but what I mean is that in, in Disruptive Witness, I primarily talk about distractions as, as a way to avoid ourselves. And I, and I do think, you know, Pascal talks about this. Socrates talks about this. This is true. This is true. It's a, it's a part of human nature when we don't want to look at ourselves and our sin nature, I would say, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is we numb ourselves by distractions. Um, and what I argue is that we live at a, at a time that is particularly um uh conditioned and mm-hmm. um designed for us to be distracted but i also realized that you know what um that's not the whole account like sometimes sometimes you're you're not distracting yourself because there's sin in your life that you need to address or you don't want to uh, f- face the emptiness of living without god and you need to repent and come to him sometimes contemporary life is just awful Mm -hmm. and you come home and you're exhausted and you put your kids to bed and you feel even more exhausted and drained and you feel like the best thing that you can do is sit and watch a sitcom because you have nothing else to give and um the more i started thinking about this in my own life okay where where are these places where i feel burned out Essentially, um, the more I realized that, you know, they have this pattern there of, uh, of being what I what I call sort of inhuman aspects of the contemporary world, which I think are demoralizing in a million different ways. So just one example off the top of my head that I've had to deal with recently because we had a little car accident on the way home from a vacation where a mountain lion jumped in front of us. Wow. Um, automated. Yeah, I know. Ridiculous. Automated phone systems. We're driving through Arizona. It's 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. Uh, my wife's driving. Mountain lion zips out in front of us. We crash. Airbags go off. We pull. She pulls over the side of the road. She did a heroic job without panicking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And my kids are screaming. They're paranoid. They're freaked out because of the explosion and the crash. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Is the mountain lion still alive? Is it going? To, <laughs> is it mad and going to come and get us?" And I'm on the phone with Triple N, like, I gotta get a tow truck, I've gotta get us to, to Flagstaff. We're stuck in the middle of the desert at 10 o'clock at night. Our kids are exhausted from 13 hours of driving. And what killed me in that moment was I had to deal with an automated phone system. And now I know this sounds petty, but bear, bear with me, right? Like so you called a number and had to like choose one, two, three, or four? Exactly. Oh my but gosh. especially nowadays, uh, you know, it's not, just uh, push the button because uh, it's listening to you to say a number. Yeah. Now that's great if you're in the perfect environment and there are no sounds around, but I don't know if your kids are screaming and your car horn is stuck oh, going wow. off Wow. and cars are driving by, like it's triggering all kinds of things. And I'm, 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 I'm on the phones 
you know, worry about us getting hit, right? I'm just screaming at the phone, let me talk to a freaking person, mm-hmm. right? Because I need to get my my kids out of here. Mm-hmm. Over the course of several days, we got we got to the hotel. But over the course of several days, I had to call my insurance and I had to call all these other places, uh, you know, the a Honda dealership. And it was always the same thing. Every time I called, there was something soul-sucking about the way I had to navigate these systems. Um that were intentionally designed to try to not get me to talk to another human being, mm-hmm. right? Because every time I talk to a human being, that's costly to the company. Right. So their idea is let's be efficient. And when efficiency is the highest good, what can happen is uh, you get dehumanizing uh, uh, c- scenarios. So uh, Part of the book, the book is not about <laughs> phone systems, although I, I, I think I do talk about it. It's briefly. just the first three chapters. Uh, it's just the first five chapters <laughs> and, um, and the subsequent ones. Um, but but the basis, the basis, the basic arguments I make is this: um, uh, I, I argue that um, humans are uh, that the world, the contemporary, that contemporary society is not designed for us, for humans, as God made us. Mm-hmm. And because it's de- not designed for us, because we're living in an environment that is alien to us, that's foreign to us, not just in that, you know, uh, you know, aliens, uh, you know, in the desert sort of biblical way, but, but like, uh, uh, anthropologically, this is not how humans are supposed to live because mm-hmm. we're in that environment. It's actually rational and, uh, quite natural that we feel anxiety, stress, overwhelmed uh this need to this sense of being burnt out like it makes sense the main metaphor i use at the beginning of the book is the image of a of a lion in a zoo that sometimes you go to a zoo and you'll see a lion or a bear pacing in circles repetitively yeah yeah i've seen and uh yeah so there's a name for this a zoocosis it's a not the technical term but it is a, a name used to describe this because it's a kind of sickness, a kind of mental illness that happens with uh, a caged animal or an animal is, is, is caged, that it's not living in its environment. What's fascinating to me about that example is that you can have the top zoologist. So let's say you have someone whose life's work is to study this African lion, right? Like they know more about that African lion and its history and its you know biology than the lion itself knows. The lion knows its existence. That's it. And they can spend a fortune designing a habitat that is, you know, the best way strategically, efficiently, that's a key word, uh, designed to please this lion. And yet they'll still walk around in, in circles obsessively. And sometimes as a result, um, you know, they're given antidepressants <laughs> or wow. they're given playthings. And I'm just, you know, as I'm thinking, as I'm reading about this, doing research for this book, I'm like, that that feels like me. Mm. Like, I, uh, <laughs> it feels like me. I'm given, you know, uh, things to distract me and given antidepressants because the environment is messed up. So what exactly do I mean by an inhuman environment? So. What I argue in the book is that the con- that contemporary society assumes something about human nature and builds society based on that nature. And they assume that we are our own and belong to ourselves. And so it takes we take that idea, it's built into our laws, it's built into our technology, it's built into our consumerism, our politics, our habits, social practices, all these things. Society assumes that you are your own and belong to yourself. 
But if that's not true, then it actually makes sense for us to feel terrible. Mm. And uh, so I argue uh, uh, what I call a biblical anthropology, which is that we are not our own, but belong to God, which mm-hmm. I get from the first question answer in the Heidelberg Catechism and the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's in the Bible, too. It's in the Bible, too. It might have been in the Bible before uh, Heisenberg got a hold of it. We're looking into that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so second edition. That's right. It's the second episode of, a, of a, whatever that show was that I watched. I said Mad Men, but that ain't right. Um, um, it, is your, is your thinking of the, is this related to Carl Truman's modern self, uh, philosophy that he's written in his book, um, on the rise of the modern self it, or is your, is your analysis that you just gave similar to what he's, uh, what he's writing about in that scenario? It, it is. So, um, there are definitely some similarities. So his work is more of a, a, a is more academic and more historical. Mm-hmm. So he's looking at, okay, here's how the modern self rose. Um, that's not my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, his work is more um, what I would call uh, objective. So it's distanced from the uh, lived reality, which is not a bad thing. Like, mm-hmm. That's a good, there's a, there's space for that. And that can be very helpful. Um, where, as I say in the, in the introduction to this book, um, this is a book written not by somebody who's a cultural outsider, but as someone who experiences these same desires and fears and, and conflicts himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, th- those are some pretty, uh, I think, significant um significant differences okay. i would say so right. in other words I'll, I'll put it this way so i would give truman's book to somebody who wants to know how did we how did society get to this place mm-hmm. but i wouldn't necessarily give it to a uh, high school senior or even a college senior who is is a deeply struggling with these identity issues um because they might not they might not get um you know, having their experience treated objectively is not always the helpful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that actually leads me directly into the next thing that I was going to say. So I watched a, um, I watched a chapel talk that you gave. Yeah. That uh, I think was based on an article that you'd written. Uh, was it about, Uh was it about depression? Is that remind me of, of what it was? That's basically it. Yeah. Okay. So, but, uh, but what, I'm addressing now is that not only do you have uh, in, in your professional and academic career and in your interests, you have this uh, willingness and desire to speak to, to speak publicly about things that encapsulate theology and ethics that matter to uh, evangelicals or that should matter to evangelicals. And to some degree, the wider world as well. But there's also apparently a side to you that is somewhat pastoral because what you wrote that was the impetus for the talk that you gave in chapel was extraordinarily pastoral. So I want to ask you to think about the subject matter of your book and what you just said was it would be applicable to people who are in X scenario. So I want you to speak kind of pastorally to, um, to that person that your book is designed uh, to help or to encourage or uh, to give them some ground to stand on as they're thinking about themselves or that person who doesn't realize that they've been bought with a price or that God loves them and has 
I don't want to say has a wonderful plan for their life, but there's something bigger than just us being our there's there's I think there is both a biblical reality that we should be authentic and be ourselves because God's created each one of us unique. And at the same time, mm-hmm. that that is not the pinnacle of who God wants us to be, that there's something that we That's can right. be in him. So address that a little bit uh, for somebody who's listening, who be like, man, I don't know. I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to have my best life now, but I'm not sure it's going that way. And I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I, um, I, this book definitely came out of a major uh, influence of this was talking with with college students, which mm. is what I do every day, and dealing, helping them through their anxieties. And one of the things that I think is a very common experience in the contemporary world is this sense of being burnt out. There's this sense that you're required to be always optimizing, always improving. Um, and I talk about this in, in the book through this um, uh, historian, a French historian, political scientist named Jacques Ellul. Uh, who talks about technique, and he argues that in the contemporary world, this drive for efficiency becomes the ultimate value, and it, it that does seem to be that way, um, where there are constantly ads thrown at you saying, here's how you can be a better spouse, mm-hmm. or a better student, or better looking, or do your housework more efficiently, or fix this. The result of that kind of life is that you always feel inadequate. You, you're perpetually inadequate. And you're also presented with so many choices about ways to live and also career paths that you feel overwhelmed. Mm. And in my experience, uh, uh, most Christian students who are graduating college have the sense that if they don't get, if they don't marry the right person, and if they don't find that choose the right career, that their life is not going to amount to anything. Mm. And so they have been taught that they are essentially their own. And it's their responsibility to tell a good story, to achieve something meaningful, to make meaning in their life, to be useful, et cetera, et cetera. And that burden is overwhelming. Mm. Like that, that'll crush you. And it does over and over and over again. And uh, I think a lot of people, it's it's certainly not just the young. I think we have, um, you know, I, in the book, I argue that there's a lot of people who are in a per- perpetual identity crisis for this very reason. They're constantly shifting their identities because they're trying to make a story that's good enough to justify their existence because they are they have been taught that that's the way it is. And the <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the freeing thing is that um, if we are not our own, but we belong to God, then um, we have, uh, our existence is not something we justify. Our being in the world is good because God created us and preserves us. So that's done. And if we um, follow Christ, then um, spiritually, that we, we are justified uh, before him, that's that's done. Mm-hmm. Now, now for a lot of um, for a lot of people, the, the problem with that is, well, you know, does this mean that we just don't have to do anything? But uh, of course, the flip side of belonging to God is that you have real obligations to your neighbors, not just obligations to love your neighbor and care for them and and protect them and pursue justice for them in order to create an online identity or to feel like you're doing enough or whatever, right? Not something for yourself, 
but because you objectively belong to God, that means you also belong to this church and you have obligations to your family, to your church, your neighbor, and to creation where you have to act. And, um, but that's a, that's a relief because I think for a lot of young people who are concerned about social issues and about pursuing justice, there's a sense that you can never do enough. Like you've got to keep right. I being sen- yeah, righteous. I sense that. I sense that from and young it's people. Yeah, it absolutely yeah, is. And it, yep. It's it's crushing. But when you realize, no, I am free to act in the spheres of influence I have. I am free to act towards justice because my because I belong to God. Mm-hmm. There's 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 freedom there to to live. So. Um, it's it's not a book that says I'm, here's how to fix all your problems. In fact, what I argue is that society is still going to tell you, I'm sorry, no, you are your own, and you need to tell a better story. You need to pursue justice in this way, or you need to improve yourself in these ways. Otherwise, you're not someone. So, someone important. So, I think that this is one of the difficulties of living in the modern world. But we can identify, we can we can diagnose the problem, and we can sort of change some of our thinking and identify it in our own hearts and say, okay, this is a lie. I don't, I'm not going to believe this, but we still have to accept, you know, acknowledge the fact that we're swimming upstream mm. and society is still going to treat us that way. And that's still going to create um, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, feelings of inadequacy. And uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that. So I'm not solving the world's problems. The book is uh, You're Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. It comes out in uh, either September or October, depending on whether you believe the world's largest bookstore or the author. Um, so <laughs> looks like this is going to be out in time to make a really good Christmas present for your high school senior or your uh, college student child or nephew or niece. Uh, and I think this, if, if it's as you say, then this should be a like perpetual graduation gift uh, in the coming years for people to consider, uh, to give. So Alan, you're on Twitter. Is it, uh, at the Alan Noble? Is that right? That sounds likely. Yes. At the Alan Noble. Or is yep. it, but the R's not in there or is it? I can't remember. The R is it, is it Alan R Noble? Is that your name or R Alan Noble? No. Okay. No. Oh, you're thinking of, Oh, Alan Noble. My oh. first name is Orville. Did you know that? Like, like the right, like the no, right no. brother. No, no. Orval, O R V A L, A L, A L, Orval. Yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird, I don't, It was Grandpa's name. I was, so. dude. I was just waiting for you to get to who, who, who had that before you, because I know your parents didn't come up with that one. <laughs> I mean, that's like a that's that's like a Scrabble tile name if it didn't come from the family. It's uh, Trappist monks make this beer. Called Orval. No. Uh, in this, in, for real. In this place in <laughs> France called Orval, because or meaning uh, gold and val meaning valley, golden valleys. This is valley in France. Um, I, I cannot for the life of me understand how grandpa got that name. We're not French. I don't, I'm just like, I don't. And he wasn't drinking some fancy Trappist bunkers. His parents weren't when they named him. So I, I, I don't, I don't understand. That's but fantastic. Anyway, yeah. But all that to say, no. Oh, Alan, uh, oh, Alan Noble is not my my Twitter name. Twitter it's the Alan Noble. So don't. Wow. <laughs> so don't put that in. Man. Okay. Well, Orval, good to have you today, and uh, <laughs> look forward to picking up your book. <laughs> Thanks. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. 
If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.